I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. It's been more than six months since the internet shut down in Jammu and Kashmir. We thought it would be a good idea to have a discussion around the recent updates. And to do this, we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, we have Apar Gupta, the director of Internet Freedom Foundation. Some of you may remember Apar from the last episode we did with him together at the ORF Sci-Fi event. It was on facial recognition. We also have uh, Pratik with us, our in-house tech expert, uh, who has recently conducted excellent research on internet shutdowns. And I would like to get this episode rolling. With the Anuradha Basin judgment, Apar, could you give us some context uh, on the updates over there? Yeah. So on August fifth, two thousand nineteen, the state of Jammu and Kashmir was converted to a union territory, and Article three seventy was also uh, uh, abrogated. Now, uh, flowing from that, the internet services, as well as mobile telecommunication services, as well as landed wire services, were all disconnected. So, a complete telecommunication shutdown was enforced. Gradually, there has been a partial restoration of certain services. However, mobile internet services, uh, even today, uh, which are high speed, remain disconnected in Kashmir and parts of Jammu as well. So a legal challenge was filed, which is a restricted legal challenge by a journalist uh, who is the editor and publisher of Kashmir Times, Anuradha Basin, uh, who approaches the Supreme Court, uh, arguing that the orders which were passed enforcing the telecommunications blackout on the erstwhile state of Jammu and Kashmir was actually um, illegal, and it's a limited challenge which only seeks to uh, impugn. and constitutionally contest the telecommunications blackout so the actual order not the legal power and entitlement of the government to exercise the power okay so this is a thin difference to people who may not be lawyers but the difference is basically between night and day for people who are lawyers uh, the difference is that you are only challenging the exercise of a power rather than the existence of a power itself and this was also done because we thought it will be incremental so uh, the internet freedom foundation through teams of lawyers represented two journalist bodies in this challenge this was the foundation for media professionals and the indian journalists union Uh, who supported Anuradha Basin and the Supreme Court of India after substantial arguments gave a judgment on January 10th 2020 so uh, there are certain uh, things in the judgment which seem uh, incredibly problematic several lawyers who have worked on this case as well as who have not worked on the case have used all kinds of analysis to show how the judgment falls short it's disappointing chintan chandrachud even calls it a uh, act of judicial evasion Uh, abrogation and um, the larger sense is that the judgment did not go towards doing what it w- was asked to do because the court by itself does not do its principal duty of evaluating the legality of the exercise of the power that I talked about. So it doesn't actually comment on the legality of the internet shutdown orders. And these internet shutdown orders, curiously, were not even made public prior to the hearing in this case. And even when the case was being heard, needed to be directed 
to the solicitor general for production of these orders. These orders were only 10 sample orders which were furnished to the court after some amount of resistance. So, and the court actually uh, expressed disappointment by stating that such kind of transparency is necessary for people to approach courts and to challenge uh, government actions of internet shutdowns. So, we did win on that. There is now a requirement of transparency and post the Anuradha Basin judgment, all uh, orders which are being passed under the Telegraph Act, specifically Section 5.2 and the Telecom Suspension Rules are being published on the website of the Home State Department. Some orders have not, the previous orders they passed uh, prior to January 10th, which is the pronouncement of the judgment, have not been published till now. The second is the court also recognized the doctrine of proportionality, uh, which is a legal doctrine which allows the government to do things only in a very rational manner to democratic objectives. So it can't do something which is very excessive. It can't place a curfew which is perpetual, which is unlimited. And the court says that you can't have a perpetual internet shutdown. Finally, the court also says that the internet telecom suspension rules lack several safeguards and they need to be reviewed. But what's really bad in this judgment and what's concerning is as follows. Firstly, as I said earlier, the court does not actually review the internet shutdown orders which were passed to stop telecommunication services in the state of Jammu and Kashmir. It shifts this uh, job back to the state government and the administrator and it asks them to review the internet shutdown orders. The second thing is that this then makes the status quo which is there remain. And this is what I've also indicated in an article that I penned for the Hindu that the status quo will remain. And finally, it, uh, the court indicates something which is very troubling and undermines the public core of the internet by suggesting that till internet services can be fully restored, partial restoration may be examined by the government to essential websites. So this is what we see after January 10th. We see orders in which uh, selective wireline internet services are permitted and this entire business of blacklists and whitelists start. So I think it's here that Pratik's research really and Rohini's research really shines uh, uh, excellent light on why this practice by itself is not even giving the intended access to the essential websites which may be essential. But the larger problem I'll just indicate and I'll stop here is that the internet is a, a public utility it gives the primary function of the internet is availability of choice, uh, liberty to people to go and view and consume information. And if you're just permitting people to transact very essential business and that too after a period of six months when they have not had internet access, you're basically reducing it from the public internet and damaging the public core of the internet itself. This is what people have fought for not only in the net neutrality campaign but uh, the wider concerns on the internet from intermediary rules to privacy protection. It's to protect the public character of the internet and I think this is what has been undermined and is a graver challenge and damage uh, which has been caused by an Anuradha Basin judgment. Alright, uh, thanks for that. Uh, I think that is a very comprehensive overview. And I want to get to the research um, around the blacklists and whitelists. And I know that Pratik has done some excellent research around this. We'll link uh, Pratik's Twitter thread, uh, Pratik and Rohini's Twitter thread uh, in the podcast description. But Pratik, could you give us some context on how whitelisting worked? What are the po implementation challenges here? Uh, and what your research says about this whole thing. Sure. And so just to add, we, we did an episode on that, uh, you know, with, with Rohini. Uh, so we linked to that as well. Uh, but but just to summarize, right, as Apar mentioned, there were a series of orders that came out 
one every week starting the 14th, 21st, 28th, etc. Basically saying that, okay, these are the specific set of websites that will be granted access, right? And there was also uh, restrictions in there that uh, you'd be restricted to 2G speeds, Hmm. Right. There were talk. There was mention of specific kiosks for about 400 kiosks that uh, that people that residents would have access to, but those would be in government facilities. Uh, and there was something about uh, IT and I, ITS companies them having the ability to get some sort of wired uh, wired hmm. internet. Right. Uh, so it it the order initially had about 134 websites, then expanded to 300 and 301. Uh, now, what what was apparent to to, to Rohini and me when we looked at uh, this list was that the way the internet is designed, this architecture just just wouldn't work, uh, mm. right? And what what we did was the technology that we used was not very sophisticated. It was as simple as uh, using a Chrome extension uh, mm. that only allowed access to specific URLs. Right? Uh, mm. We picked up the URLs that were in the whitelist, uh, put them in there, and did an analysis of you know tried to recreate the experience of what someone would go through when they when they mm. went into that website. Right, so it, it it was subjective, right? Uh, I will say that, and we tried to then classify websites into whether they were usable, and that basically saying that there was visual elements minimal impact in terms of functionality, whether they were partially usable, which is there was some impact, but you could still do most of the main things hmm. that you would want to do on that particular on that particular website, and then was whether they were just pretty much unusable, you know, the UI was completely broken, or you just couldn't use the main features. Of of the website, right? So, hmm. uh, and we basically then ran through these 301 URLs. We've published them uh, openly if anyone else wants to use that uh, data, right? We've published that on, on Zenodo. Uh, now, what we found was, it's, it's, you know, going through this was about 58 of those websites were usable. Hmm. 68 were partially usable, right? So, that's about 126 totally. Hmm. Uh, of the remaining, uh, we had to eliminate some entries because either there weren't any URLs provided, uh, you had duplicate entries. And for 301. For the 301, right. right? So you essentially left with 270 that we could test, right? So the mm. 126, that leaves 144 websites, or 144 of them, or those entries were basically were pretty much not usable in, in any. So something like Hotstar is that, let's not take into account the 2G speeds right now. Yeah. But. Hotstar, is it under partially usable? Because I imagine there's a lot of trackers around Hotstar that make it function. Yeah, so we had to some extent eliminate Hotstar because there was no URL entered there. Okay. Right? It was just Hotstar. Uh, hmm. Now, what was the, you know, we don't know if the expectation was for ISPs to go and analyze the app and figure out what are the URLs that, that, that we, because, so, you know, for, for, just for the sake of it, we did go to the website. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the website was partially usable. Again, someone who's designing an app knows that it's very rare that your uh, app also uses the same www.hotstar.com. Yeah, it's more likely they use an api.hotstar.com. They'll have a bunch of SDKs uh, mm. in there for tracking, monitoring, for uh, you know, which, which would be using different URLs. The or the, the content is most likely coming off a CDN, which is probably using a different domain. So none of that would none of that would work, right? Uh, but you know, for for the sake of for, for the sake of this testing, we decided to exclude it simply simply because there wasn't a specific URL, okay. and and we've called that out that you know we, we don't know how the ISPs are going to decide uh, how to how to implement this right. Uh, the other interesting thing, one of the other interest egregious sort of examples was with banking, 
websites. So there were fourteen yeah. websites that were that were classified as as banking. Unfortunately, what happened to, again the way a lot of these banks design their websites is you'll have your www.onlinespi.com mm. or SPI online uh, right so, .com, which is the actual landing page. But if you go to if you want to log in for personal banking, it's normally something like a retail dot or personal yeah. banking dot something like that. None of them were on the whitelist, right? Uh, so you have a situation where you can get to the bank's landing page, hmm. but you can't log in and do any sort of personal banking, right? So. So technically, that's partially usable, but at the same time, if you try to log in, which which is what your use should be, if yeah. you go to a banking yeah. a website, you won't be able you to. Won't log in. You won't be able to. So can you can you give us some examples of sites that are usable, partially usable, and uh, not usable at all? So, so, so let me start with usable ones first, right? The ones that were usable were mainly a number of government websites, uh, like okay. the Public Works Department of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. Those sort of websites were were usable, and the reason for that was two. Right, there are two broad reasons for some of these websites were usable. Was that the way they were designed? Mm. They pretty much had most of the content coming from one one that same domain, right? Mm. And it was mainly text based information. Mm. Right? There were there weren't a lot of style elements. There weren't a lot of images. There weren't all mm. these sort of things. Uh, so these this was the first chunk of mainly usable URLs. The others were there were some some news websites that that were usable mm-hmm. that we that we classified as usable. Again, in in those cases, it. So I just want to point one thing out. We did ignore the fact that trackers and things like that would yeah. not work because we were looking at it from a user's perspective, mm-hmm. right? So that is something that's absolutely crucial to a website operator, right? If, yeah. I, if I'm running a newspaper and I don't know uh, how many visits I'm getting, that that that's that's a problem. But we sort of didn't consider that. But th- there were some newspapers that we found, you know, media publications that their websites were minimally impacted because they didn't have a login ability. So it was just, you know, cash pages that that could be delivered. So some of those, okay. uh, some of those worked. Uh, and unusable is uh... unusable was something like an Amazon thought in was was completely broken. Hmm. A lot of uh, a lot of news websites again, uh, NDTV f- for example was completely completely broken. I mean. If if you log in, if you actually access those pages, uh, it looks like you know some of the text-only pages that you would see from the mm-hmm. internet in the early two thousands, completely garbled, right? Uh, so it's it's not it's really not usable in any practical, yeah, uh, practical sense. I think the interesting thing about your uh, emulation is that we've also pointed this out that you were running this on. 3G, 4G speeds. Correct. We, so yes, so it, it is actually considerably worse um, if you're using internet in Kashmir. Definitely, right? Uh, we, we, that's 2G. Yeah. So yeah. Th- those would be those would be. I'm assuming throttled to 2G speeds because again, not everyone there has 2G hmm. infrastructure anymore, hmm. uh, right? So th- there would be some element of throttling. Again, we're not sure how they're actually enforcing that. Uh, you know, an educated guess is that they're, they're just throttling your speeds, hmm. uh, right? So that. Brings in a potential net neutrality argument as well, right? Mm. Uh, in terms of first, you're only limiting it to x number of domains, and then you're throttling mm. uh, throttling speeds. Thanks, Pratik. Um, I want to throw this question open to both of you because I know apart that IFF does a lot of work around internet shutdowns. Yeah. Um, what are the possible opportunities to engage, given that this uh, is the current scenario right now? So I think there's tremendous opportunity to engage given that internet shutdowns, as have been noticed, is not a Kashmir or a Jammu specific problem. It, the second highest number of internet shutdowns uh, as per certain 
public reports and trackers is there in Rajasthan and uh, RTIs that we have filed with the state government of Bihar which has actually given over internet shutdowns all this have shown that even Bihar as a state shut down the internet close to 30 to 40 times in two years. And that is more than whole nations, I imagine. Yeah, that's correct. So, internet shutdowns are a pan-India problem, Kashmir to Kanyakumari. And this is not a metaphor or a, a, a political statement. It's a fact. Uh, because you see, internet shutdowns also happened in Uttar Pradesh, Rajasthan, Odisha, West Bengal. They have happened in, I think, Tamil Nadu, Maharashtra, Rajasthan, uh, Delhi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, okay, uh, okay. Uh, Punjab and Haryana. So, uh, and these are just shutdowns which are uh, covered in the press. And that to the English press, not the vernacular press. Hmm. So, quite often, there is no system of re- uh, of credible reporting which goes beyond querying the reported shutdowns. The first opportunity is just in terms of what the Anuradha Basin judgment now offers. In terms of the government being obligated especially state governments, in publishing all the internet shutdown orders that they make, which is something which is coming very directly from the Anuradha So, I would contemplate that all state governments will now start proactively publishing not only when they shut down the internet, but the legal order Mm. when they actually do shut down the internet. And if they don't do it, it's a breach of the judgment. That's number one. And this actually improves on existing methodologies, which are both uh, based on press reports, RTIs, as well as technical interferences. There are two trackers, one by SFLC at internetshutdowns.in, the other by Access Now, uh, who run run the global uh, internet shutdown tracker. And the third one is a technical tracker, which is accompanying the uh, disclosure reports or by Facebook, which uh, states when Facebook is unavailable in a specific region for a period of time, thereby giving an insight that there may be network interference. I think there's credible work which can be done around building a very clear methodology, which uh, becomes less falsifiable and credible for trackers by itself to measure when shutdowns are being done. Secondly, a much more uh, qualitative study, why shutdowns are being done. And then third is, of course, the impacts and effects, um, which have been most noticeable in terms of the reports put out by Brookings or ICR, IER or GNI. And these are three reports, Brookings being in 2016 by Daryl West, ICR report being authored by Mansi Kedia and Rajat Kathuria, and GNI is also in 2018. Uh, so these basically do have varying methodologies for economic losses and give different figures for uh, economic losses, uh, which may have uh, first level uh, losses in terms of just being in terms of pure uh, GDP sub um, fraction based methodology in which what is the contribution of the internet sector, etc, etc, and walk back towards a figure. So I think uh, we can build a much credible methodology, first Mm -hmm. based off the number of shutdowns, then the economic losses, and then of course, the injuries to people in terms of um, 
what are the actual personal in- impacts, the impacts to personal liberty. And I would again like to cite three pieces of work. Uh, one is by 101 reporters in CIS in 2018. The other is by the Bachao Project in terms of what is, um, of course, Rohini's author there again in 2018, in which what are the impacts of internet shutdown, especially uh, on women, uh, given that women need to uh, navigate their lives. And the third one is by Jan uh, Radzak in 2019, where he shows they are counterproductive actually, because internet shutdowns actually prevent law enforcement from listening in to what's happening on the ground. And secondly, oh, okay. stop people from uh, actually voicing pe- uh, their uh, concerns in a very uh, democratic fashion, right? Uh, so by itself, they don't result in any kind of violence. So uh, also these kind of studies, I think, need to be supported more. And I think all of this will then lead to much more advocacy, which will be, of course, courts centered but even broader of course it will help in terms of deeper level of fact based narrative rather than rhetoric based narrative which seems to be uh, emerging uh, in which there's an increased polarization and uh, not to say that internet shutdowns are permissible my firm belief is they are unconstitutional but to base it on fact an educated study would be something which would advance a policy dialogue and credible solutions as much as emotion and rhetoric is also necessary to engage people and to bring the urgency of this across. I think so. Um, there are also opportunities to widen partnership because the stakeholders who are injured by internet shutdowns are not only protesters or Kashmiris, they're telecom companies, they're internet businesses, mm-hmm. right? So you can notice the same kind of buy-in um, especially given that also government is put to a disadvantage in which it can't roll out its tender processes, it can't do so many of its uh, e-governance functions. So I would say that internet shutdowns are clearly not the solution. They in fact are making a problem even worse. And finally, all of this needs to be uh, done in a way in which we can nudge our government institutions to come to a much more rational policy around internet shutdowns. And this is the final thing which is offered by the Anuradha Basin judgment, which I talked about uh, at the very start of this broadcast, that what's good in it, at least what's decent and we can work towards. It's that it's directed the respondent in the case, which is the union ministry to review the internet shutdown rules. Finally, I'd just like to add that a lot of this work will not stop or start with uh, people who are uh, who have been mentioned on this podcast. Sometimes you'll notice people who are really, really uh, uh, disturbed by internet shutdowns just approaching courts by themselves. This includes a PIL which has been filed by Ehtisham Hashmi uh, about two weeks back in the Supreme Court of India to declare internet shutdowns itself as unconstitutional. So what was I distinguishing early on was the Anuradha Basin judgment in which only the exercise of the power which was challenged. Ehti Hashmi has actually challenged the, the, existence. the existence of the power itself. And that may come up for hearing in the Supreme Court uh, tomorrow, which is the 7th of February or uh, the following, uh, the week following that. Uh, and 7th February being a Friday. Anyways, uh, with this, I'd just like to close because I'd like to say there's tremendous opportunity. Internet shutdowns are clearly harming everyone. And if the government wants to do something, even whitelisting is not a credible way to go about it because it inverses a constitutional logic in which free speech is the rule. 
and restriction on free speech is the exception so mm. beyond the structure of the internet and how the network has been designed uh, which i think the free expression guarantee in isolation a legal doctrine in isolation yeah. itself recognizes that you have very specific exemptions and this is what's already there in the law so you have a blocking part uh, section 69a under the it act 2000 i think in the anuradha basin judgment the judges start with it was the worst of times it was the best of times i would just say that these are interesting times and uh, uh, it's it's actually uh, something which is uh, bringing a greater availability of internet both pose a challenge to law enforcement in a lot of ways but also testing our constitutional commitment in how we deal in terms of responses towards it so even to for people who feel quite specifically with regard to kashmir i would first urge them to look at the problem a bit more on its very policy plane secondly emerge from fact and third look at it on a national basis and look at it within a constitutional framework and that's the kind of framework we have been approaching in our work at internet freedom foundation and of course technical analysis such as which has been done by prateek and roini is very useful and adds to our work the most recent representation we have done and this is the final thing i'll say um, we have uh, drafted for foundation for media professionals is uh, calling on the government to roll the white listing and black listing uh, whatever exercise they are following uh, using this analysis which has been done by lawyers at internet freedom foundation on behalf of the foundation for media professionals saying that people in kashmir are no better than what they were when the internet was fully shut down All right. Thank you so much, uh, Apar and Pratik. Can we please have your Twitter handles? My Twitter handle is Apar nineteen eighty four. Mine is at Pratik Wagre. All right. Uh, IFF also does uh, amazing work around internet shutdown. So please follow them at Internet Freedom on Twitter, and we are at the rate Internet Freedom dot in on Instagram. Please follow us on Instagram. It's a much more funner place. Uh, we think so. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us at All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs. Check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in. Hey hey, it's been another great week on the IVM Podcast Network. On all things policy, Ananya Desai and Rohan Pai discuss recurrent bans on fireworks during festive seasons in India and discuss possible solutions to tackle India's air pollution problem. On the Habit Coach podcast, Ashton Doctor welcomes Sahil Mehta, an esteemed mountaineer and author of the book Break Free. Sahil shares a transformative experience which became the catalyst for embracing discipline and fulfillment. The episode explores the profound impact of vulnerability on personal growth. Folks, if you like our shows, do spread the word. Tell your friends and don't forget to rate and review them wherever you're listening to them. Follow us on social media. We are IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. You'll also find all our shows on YouTube at youtube.com/ivmpodcasts. And finally, we would like to thank our sponsors this week. Omedia Network India, Abbott IDFC First Bank and Save Life Foundation. 
थैंक यू फॉर मेकिंग दिस पॉसिबल